off one side was a very sheer, basically 3,000 foot cliff to the depths of the unknown. Welcome to Nature Junkie Radio. This is a place for us to explore the wisdom, wonder, and ways of nature connection to help replenish your stoke. I'm your host, Jeff Johnson, and I hope you enjoy the ride. Hey everyone, this interview is a super special one for me and I think it will be for you too. In the mid 90s, I was a professional snowboarder. It's not something I talk about a lot, but it was an incredibly fun chapter of my life because snowboarding was just starting to take off like wildfire. Me and my friends would ride the mountain all day, pushing each other to learn new tricks. We built bigger terrain parks with ever bigger jumps and handrails. We'd spend evenings in the back room of snowboard shops, hacking our boards and bindings apart, feeding R&D for our board sponsors. And the smell of melted wax filled the air along with tunes blaring from Pennywise, NoFX, Pearl Jam, Snoop Dogg, and Sublime. Hey, it was the 90s. It was also a super innovative era for the sport. Little did I know at the time how crazy snowboarding would get in the coming years. Flash forward and people now do triple corks in the half pipe, 1440s or probably more by the time I'm saying this in the parks. And the jumps are so big now that it makes Evil Knievel's motorcycle launches over shark tanks and buses look like a baby's game. But like most board sports, snowboarding has many dimensions. One of those is backcountry riding. Unlike the super technical trick nature of park and pipe riding, backcountry riding is more of an art form. At least that's the way I see it. It's marked by the creativity of the line you choose on big blank canvases, your flow, the style of your air, and how long you can hold your grab. Well, today's guest, Elena Hyatt, has performed at the top of both of these dimensions of snowboarding. Elena is a two-time Olympian snowboarder and X Games gold medalist. She's the first female to land a frontside 900 in competition at the ripe age of 13 years old. She's the first snowboarder to land a double backside alley-oop rodeo and a half-pipe contest. And she's the first female to ride the infamous Tahoe Grizzly Spines. She's graced the cover of many magazines, and it is a complete honor to have such a badass on the show. If you're thinking at this point that we're going to geek out too hard on trick technicalities, don't worry. We check that stuff at the door. Instead, this is a conversation about Elena navigating life's transitions, doing extremely hard things, and learning how to better connect with everything. So whether you're a snowboarder or not, I have no doubt you'll glean something insightful from this convo. All right, enough yarning. Let's drop in. Elena Hyatt, welcome to Nature Junkie Radio. It's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So where are you greeting us from today? Where are you in the world? <laughs> I am calling in from Lake Tahoe. I live here full time and it's a beautiful afternoon. No complaints. Yeah. You know, one of the wonders of the world. So I'm lucky to be here. Gotta love the Sierras. Okay. I love the Sierras. <laughs> oh, you know, certain parts of the world just kind of have a piece of your heart. The Sierras are one of those for me, big time. 
I love to hear that. Same here. So we align on that for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, for the past handful of years, you made this switch from a lot of competitive half pipe riding to kind of hardcore backcountry free riding. <laughs> I know you probably wouldn't say hardcore, but I can. It's pretty, it seems hardcore <laughs> to me. But and we're going to get into that in depth. And I really want to get into some of those expeditions, adventures that you've been on. But first, I want to throw it back and go back to where nature came into your life in a meaningful way. Where did nature first kind of grab hold for you? How old, where were you in the world? What were the influences? Yeah, for sure. Where did it first come into my life? I've been so lucky to really have parents that influenced me to spend a lot of time in nature from the very beginning. I was born in Hawaii. So innately the tropics, I feel like you're just in nature a lot. It's hot and you're just, you know, as a baby, you're just naked out inside in nature. And that's kind of how the the vibe is in Hawaii. And so I was lucky to live there until I was about six years old. And I feel those initial years really stuck with me. I have memories that cut in and out from those, you know, early years. But I think that just the innate feel of nature has always been a part of me, I think, from Hawaii. My family relocated to the mountains when I was six, uh, and we were lucky enough to land in Lake Tahoe. And Lake Tahoe is another just full place as far as nature goes and access to the mountains, to the water, to fresh air. and I think that I had those influences from my parents very early on, and I've been lucky enough to not have to seek that out. It's been a part of me since I was really little. So, yeah. You were deep from the get-go, sounds like. <laughs> I was deep from the get-go, for sure. And I can't necessarily pinpoint a time when I realized it was so important, but I've definitely throughout my life like always just felt better outside. <laughs> that's that's a good one yeah so you, I mean, very simply <laughs> yeah but you, i mean you hit the nature jackpot really i mean to grow up in Kauai through age six which is would be a life treasure in and of itself and then you end up in tahoe another epic nature place but it sounds like your dad was a big influence as well he was a surfer sounds like he got you amongst it sounds like i heard you say on another interview that he was determined to teach you how to snowboard or get you on the slopes as soon as possible once you moved to tahoe so it seems like he was an influence as well absolutely both my parents grew up in la it's funny how we get brought into nature right it's just is a part of what you have or it's not a part of what you have mm -hmm. so you're like wow i yeah. need this and i would say that both my parents were like i need this <laughs> and really really based their life around it finding it once they were old enough to make those decisions and um my dad has been a lifelong surfer he grew up in the long beach surf scene and then moved to hawaii when he was a teenager and an older teenager when he was out of school and yeah, he rips still. Get out surf me any day. Uh, and he's 74 now. Oh my goodness. That's awesome. Good for him. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And yeah, he loved the mountains as well and loved to be able to have that juxtaposition of skiing and then surfing. And as soon as snowboarding became a thing, he learned to snowboard. And when we moved to the mountains, 
the ski resort was his escape. It was like his surfing. And so he taught our whole family how to snowboard, I think probably before we even unpacked our house. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Boxes are everywhere and we're like on the hill. (laughs) But that's my kind of unpacking big time. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I'm sure my mom found it annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I can appreciate it. And yeah, I just remember loving snowboarding from the very beginning. I remember loving just the feeling of freedom that riding down a hill gives you. And I think that that was something that my dad really wanted to pass along to his kids. And, Mm. you know, whether you're finding that freedom in waves or on the snowboard hill or, you know, riding bikes or hiking. I think it's universal in a lot of ways. And if you can tap into it, it's really, really addicting. And and you want to be able to share it with the people that you love. Yeah, it's interesting. Many nature junkies that I've talked to, it seems to be either one moment that was just indelible or they were just sort of surrounded by it and fully integrated. And I love it when that happens. It sounds like you just, yeah, your environments were so rich that way, but then you had family instigators as well. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. It's great to create some connective tissue back to your childhood so people can see the thread of where you're at now and the kind of things you're up to and and maybe where some of that came from. But I want to talk about two different films that you're in. One is Ode Demir, and then the more recent series, Edge of the Earth. But, you know, we'll, and we'll go in that order. But Ode Demir, so just to lay a little context for everyone, is, I think, a really cool film, partly because I'm a huge, you know, John Muir fan, so I love the concept. But it's a film where you and Jeremy Jones, who's the founder of uh, Protect Our Winners, the nonprofit, set out on a foot-powered expedition deep into the John Muir wilderness in California. And you're winter camping, you got skins on split boards, I think, hiking up everything, huge packs, hiking up super steep faces with crampons and things like that. And at the time, it seems like uh, you had never been winter camping before, if I'm getting that right. But what did you learn from nature through that experience? Seems like there was a lot new there. Yeah. Wow. That's a loaded question. What did I learn? Yeah. <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> um, In the hard way, probably, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, so this film opportunity came in at a very interesting time in life for me. Um, mm. It was the spring of 2018, and I had been competing in Halfpipe for 16 years. I started competing professionally when I was 14 years old. Mm. And did everything from the Olympics to X Games to US Opens and was on tour and loved competing. Also hated it sometimes, as you will. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But yeah, had a very full career as a competitive snowboarder. And I missed the 2018 Olympics to go for the US team and was in this very transitional phase of my life. And Jeremy called me. We had a sponsor in common, Cliff Bar at the time, and we had met on on like a sponsor obligation. And he was like, after this whole Olympic thing is over, you're going to need to go splitboarding. Regardless, if it goes good, if it goes bad, you're going to need to get in the mountains. And I was kind of like, sure, whatever. (laughs) And that was in (laughs) September. And he called me in March and was like, Hey, remember when I was like, I'm going to take you splitboarding. We're going to go splitboarding. And I was like, you're right. I would love to do that. My mind is all over the place. And that sounds amazing. And yes, 
tell me where to go, <laughs> tell me where to be and what to bring and I'll be there. And um, it ended up being for this film that he was working on called Otamir. And we traversed the Sierra from east to west. So from the mammoth side, basically to the Pacific side. And um, it was a nine nine nights, eight nights, nine days, something like that. I don't know. A lot. A lot, a lot. Long enough. <laughs> long enough to be out in the mountains. That's a good trek. It was a trek. And we rode a ton of peaks along the way and we got to camp and it was in the springtime. So it was just beautiful Sierra corn snow. And I went into that trip having loved snowboarding, loved nature, growing up in Tahoe, camping my whole life, but never doing anything like this before. And I really went into the trip like, cool, I'm going to figure out my next steps of life, kind of. I've mm. been this competitive snowboarder for a long time, and I've hit this transitional phase of what do I do next? And I think what nature taught me on that trip was just that it's such a common quote. There's some quote of nature never rushes, but everything always gets mm. completed. There's all these tasks or things to do, but you can't really rush the cycle of things. And it's so true. I went on that trip and I just immersed in the experience and like didn't think about my to-do list, what my future held or <laughs> what I was going to do when I got back from the trip. I literally got home and I was like, wow, I guess I'm home now. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> How long were we gone for? Like I like teleported out of this place somehow. And yeah, I think that we're as humans really, really inclined, want to know what's coming and want to be prepared and always have a plan, or at least that's how I have always been and feel most comfortable when we are within our realm of our comfort zone. And that trip being in a situation where I was very uncomfortable, out of my comfort zone, out of my element, but also surrounded by this connectivity of the mountains and the natural resources and away from all of society really for that long. I realized that just these things, they unfold in a timely manner the way they're supposed to. And you don't have to like rush to get everything on your to-do list done because the things that really matter, they come together when as those things do, as the moment presents itself. Mm. What a powerful lesson. I think that nature does give you this timeless sense. You can let go of this construct that we all live in, mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. And you do have to somewhat surrender so many things. Your hold on what you want, what you think should happen, what your plans were, and you surrender and you realize again that everything will get done. <laughs> and the sun will rise tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah. I also was getting nostalgic watching it because you started out at Conduct Lake and I've gone backpacking with my son up in some of the lakes back behind there. Mildred and Dorothy in that region. So I was connected to it in a new way once I rewatched it. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. It's a special place, special Very. part of the Sierra for sure. Yeah. You did take a little more gear with you than, than John Muir. 
um, used to take. I, I love the old stories of him. He's like, yeah, I took off with my two loaves of bread and a tea kettle. And, you know, he goes for 10 days on that. <laughs> I know. It makes you feel so <laughs> weak, maybe, or like soft. Uh, yeah. Soft. You read his old journals and you're like, yeah. wow, we're really soft. Yeah. This guy was, yeah. this guy was hardy. <laughs> I think the three of you are doing just fine. I saw the size of those packs. That, that, that's, <laughs> you were yeah, the packs good. were heavy. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, you wonder, you're like, well, if I didn't need anything, the packs would be light. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. You got to tell at least in Eau de Mur, the weather seemed perfect. It just seemed like epic, glorious Sierras. something must have gone wrong behind the scenes that didn't make the cut. Do you have any stories that stand out or for you, some stuff that went wrong or weird or sideways? I fell in the Creek two miles in. (laughs) I was like, this is a great start to my 40 mile hike in a Creek up to my knees. (laughs) That didn't make the cut. (laughs) I was like, we're done here. It's clear that Elena hit the nature junkie lottery by being born on Kauai and then moving to Tahoe, two places where, whether you like it or not, you're going to be deeply embedded in nature. It was amazing to hear how Elena's winter backpack splitboarding trip for the film Ode to Muir gave her the space to shift gears out of the nearly two decades of competitive snowboarding to embracing a new chapter of her career as a backcountry rider. Nature sure can provide a powerful mental reset when it's needed. The way she described the timeless nature of that trip also reminded me of the discussion I had with writer L.M. Sakasis, where he described how digital consumerist time frameworks can gnaw away at our biology, while in contrast, tuning into the tempo of nature can help us relax and create space for the things that require contemplation, such as a career shift. It seems that's exactly what the Sierras did for Elena on that trip. Next up, Elena sets her sights on a bigger backcountry objective and a much more dangerous one with an expedition to Glacier Bay National Park, Alaska. Well, let's go into Edge of the Earth. Cool. So Edge of the Earth is, I think, a pretty awe-inspiring four-part docuseries on Max. I think it's on Max, formerly HBO. <laughs> Is it uh, not HBO Max now? It's just Max. It's just Max. Okay, cool. We'll link to it. I'll link to it in the show notes. Great. But you're in episode one with Jeremy Jones again. And then, uh, is it Griffin Park? Griffin Post. Griffin Post, yep. Yeah, and you head into Glacier Bay National Park up in Alaska on a mission to do this first descent of a certain ridge of Mount Bertha up there. And... To set a little context for everyone, I mean, this is a long boat ride. This is hiking foot powered with lots of gear in tow, skinning way up into the mountains. And then eventually with the desire to summit this peak, Mount Bertha, and ride down it. I have to say, even just the shots of looking where you're going to ride before you get anywhere even near it are spine chilling for me (laughs) (laughs) to set a little bit of context. But Mother Nature threw you a nice big fat monkey wrench with the weather. Can you set us up on that and tell us a little bit about the storm that hit? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So as 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 nice as my Ode to Muir trip was, this is about <laughs> whoops. About as opposite as bad as you can get. 
yeah, this mission was really great. It was kind of Griffin Post's brainchild. And Glacier Bay is one of the most majestic national parks we have, I think, in the United States. It's quite vast, part of South Alaska. Very protected, very remote, very hard to get to. And we were going to kind of a general, somewhat central zone of it. And the goal of the trip was to do it very holistic and pretty much human powered as much as we could. So we boated in from Juneau, which was about a 24 hour boat ride. And then our plan was to hike in from the entrance of the glacier. I believe it was 15 or 18 miles to base camp and base camp sat kind of somewhat underneath Mount Bertha and then eventually walk back to the ocean and boat back out. And so kind of just a full value adventure. (laughs) And with these trips, you plan and Google search and fly in and map your plan as much as you can. But really the weather is always the question mark and that's what keeps it super exciting. (laughs) Um, We had a huge storm hit that no one was really expecting while we were on the boat. We actually got stuck on the boat for seven days, which was funny. (laughs) I mean, you're comfortable, you're on a boat, you're fine, but we didn't really have enough food for seven days and nor were we planning nearly that much time on the boat since it was only a 24 hour boat ride. And but then we got off the boat, luckily tons of snow. I mean, I think two meters of snow had fallen. So we had this epic trudge through snow to base camp and we're used to long days and, you know, working hard for, <laughs> for the reward, but this was an epically long, hard <laughs> hike. And for people who don't really adapt to splitboarding, splitboards are snowboards that cut in half. And we basically put these skins on that are one directional carpets. So they help you move up, up hill. Um, they're kind of like giant snowshoes. And when we're doing trips like this to carry all of our gear, we actually tow sleds behind us. The best kind of sleds are the sleds that you would buy at the 7-Eleven. It's super cheap, light plastic toboggan type thing and you just load up all your gear in there and you strap some rope to it and then you strap it onto your waist and it tows behind you so you've got this extra weight behind you pulling you down and usually a heavy backpack on as well (laughs) you know you're about as weighted down as you can get and we were just trudging through snow to get to base camp and and you had can i jump in real quick right there so when you you had a narrow window going from the boat because there was this unexpected storm on the boat where you just shoveled tons of snow off the Mm -hmm. boat so the boat didn't tip over but once you landed and you hit that narrow little threading the needle getting on land you basically had to haul ass for 15 hours straight to make base camp by a certain time right so it's not like oh yeah we have all the time in the world to trudge through 15 miles of snow is like giddy up right yeah for sure i mean we had planned the approach to be two days long to give us plenty of time Mm -hmm. and two or even three days long really in hopes of riding some of the mountains that we walked past and also give ourselves some time to get in and all of those things and cover ground and knowing we had a lot of weight on us. And because of the weather systems, basically we had two impending storms, one that we were in, one that was coming in. The incoming storm 
the one that we were in on the boat dropped, I think, two meters of snow. The impending storm looked like it was going to last three to five days and another two meters of snow. And being on a glacier in a storm like that without supplies is just, it's not really survivable. So we had this very short window of 24 hours between the storms. And so there was this just this push of we're either going in or we're canceling the whole trip. And so we just pushed through. And it's amazing what your body can do when there's just no other choice. <laughs> you know, like your body, you think you're only so strong and your mind is like only so strong. And then you get into these positions where you're like, well, I'm not just going to stop because what am I going to do here? <laughs> Yeah, which is a cool lesson. I mean, I've never done anything quite like that before. And it's amazing what you can work through when there is no other option. And it's definitely a lesson that I've taken with me into real life. Of This is a really challenging situation and I don't know how I'm going to get through it, but I know that I can. And I think that that's something that those lessons, for me, I learn the most when I'm in those situations. And, and I find them most when I'm in in nature because I think that they are unpredictable and they force you into learning <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. Helps you find new gears, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was getting comical the amount of snow that was falling each night. <laughs> it seemed like it was oh, yeah. the, the that uh, trip was as much about shoveling snow as it was riding anything. But describe that first bluebird morning once the storm broke and you first popped mm -hmm. out of the tent and it was a bluebird day after all that snow. How, how'd that feel? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we walked into this camp in the dark and then it just basically snowed for four days straight. So we couldn't see anything. And then waking up that first morning, seeing just the mountains that we were surrounded by and just the glistening, perfect snow that was on all the spines and gosh it was so magical i think it's waking up anywhere where you're surrounded by nature you know i think there's just this touch of magic and you can see it and really feel it and you're just camps beneath these giant mountains it was pretty cool yeah that seems just unbelievably majestic and then you think great we get to ride and i'm gonna say some people myself included, maybe make some popcorn, pop on the TV and watch <laughs> TV. But the three of you sat there and watched a different kind of nature TV happening with a lot of avalanches going on. Can you describe what was happening there? Yeah, totally. So we had this really unfortunate warming heat event that happened mm -hmm. after this giant snowfall, which happens but this was a warming event like Alaska had kind of never seen and the hottest recorded temperatures in April ever were recorded that those couple days. And basically the mountains just fell down in front of us. So it snowed, it ended up snowing, I think two and a half meters during that storm. So seven to eight and a half feet. And basically all of that snow just heated up and with with the heat and the rocks and the sun solar aspect, the snow just falls off the mountains. And um, we just sat in camp and watched the snow fall down. <laughs> it was uh, definitely an experience, that's for sure. Like hundreds of avalanches, right? You're just looking at them going, there's another one, there's another one. 
Yeah, yeah. Basically, just any snow that had fallen and stuck to the mountains eventually fell during that day. I have to ask, when you were sitting there watching all the avalanches pop off, what was your state of mind like at that point? Were you going, well, I guess the trip's a bust. I mean, this is beautiful, but we're going to get out of here because this is way too sketchy. Or was it, were you pretty confident that, hey, this will pass and then we'll get to go summit? It was very sad <laughs> because we had this beautiful snowpack, this beautiful snow. And, you know, we aim to ride soft powder snow when we <laughs> go on these trips. That's the goal, at least. Uh, it doesn't always work out that way. But so it was quite deterring that it was all falling off the mountains. But you never know. You never know what is going to happen in the days that follow these events, right? We have these giant wind events in the mountains and the snowpack is completely busted and then something will happen and it'll get really cold or it'll snow again or it'll get really warm and then all of a sudden you're riding perfect corn snow or in this case, all the powder fell off. But because of that, this high peak became really, really safe to ride. And because of the hot temps, we were able to get up really, really high in the mountain range, which may have not been possible otherwise. So, you know, I think that it's a lesson in maybe not what you want, but something is always possible and workable. And especially on these trips for me, what I've learned is your crew and the people that you surround yourself with is so important because the energy and the vibe and, and just the decision-making around how these events that you can't control happen and what you can do afterwards or instead or because of it really has so much to do with your crew and the people that you're around and how you react to something that's out of your control is so much involved in like the crew dynamic and we're really lucky on this trip to have lucky and also by design had a really amazing crew with the riders for sure. Jeremy and Griffin, they're so experienced, but also just our entire crew. You know, you watch these films and there's so many people behind the scenes that you're not seeing. We were so lucky to just have this amazing group dynamic of cool. This went wrong, but something will go right. We have to just put the puzzle pieces together and see how it all plays out. And something's going to be amazing. We're in this beautiful, amazing place. It's not a complete waste by any means. Right. And then, so from there, you were able to summit. And I'm going to remind you of some words you said in Odemir. Um, not exactly, but you said something like, describing what Jeremy does before you got deep into backcountry stuff. He said, I don't even know how he gets to these places. It's incomprehensible <laughs> to me. And then, you know, flash a couple years forward and you're standing on the top of Mount Bertha, which is absolutely incredible. I mean, just that shot when you're all at the top is so insane to me. But then the real yeah. sketchy part comes after that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that upper section called the plank. Can you describe it? You know, this that that passage at the top that was super narrow and just kind of describe that situation. And I'd love to hear your your mindset and kind of inner monologue before you dropped into that section. For sure. Yeah. So Umberto was quite a big objective. It took us maybe 24 hours, maybe a little over 24 hours to hike up summit and ride down it um, and return back to camp. I think from camp to the peak was 7,500 foot day. And there is this one section about, I don't know, say 500 feet from the top that was very, very thin. <laughs> we'll call it a couple feet wide by 
150 to 200 feet long of very airy snow. We called it the plank because it was like a plank that you were walking. And off one side was a very sheer, basically 3,000 foot cliff to the depths of the unknown. (laughs) And the other side was a rocky face, also pretty consequential, nothing that you would want to fall down, definitely over 55 degrees, not really right, all rock face, not really fallable mm-hmm. or survivable if you fell. Mm-hmm. Um, so you call that a no-fall zone, right? We call this a no-fall zone, yeah. <laughs> Basically, you have to go into it with the utmost respect and intention and knowing that you're putting yourself in a position where if something does go wrong, the consequences are very real. They are quite certain, probably death. (laughs) And it's something that I can chuckle about because it is what it is, but it's something that we take super seriously. And we enter these spaces of know that your skill level is there, be very intentional about where you're walking, where you're turning, where you're stepping and get through it so that you can get to the more fun parts of the run. (laughs) And Yeah, walking up it was fine. We had plenty of space on either side. It felt airy, but fine. Coming down the plank was definitely one of those moments where, for me, I know my skill level. I knew for sure there's no reason why I would fall here. But, you know, that kind of thought always enters your mind. And I think that for me, in these moments, these are like most intense moments where I enter the flow state. And there is nothing else other than what is right in front of you and what is happening. There is no consequence of falling because all I'm thinking about is just my next turn, my next breath, the rhythm of getting through the process of it, being very connected to my snowboard, to the snow, to my next movements. And yeah, there's really nothing that connects me to the present moment and to flow state like snowboarding does. And I think it doesn't have to be this intense of a situation, but these intense situations being in this moment definitely stand out. And I kind of black out, to be honest. I don't know. (laughs) Everything else disappears. Yeah. Everything else disappears and you're just there and then you're not there. Mm -hmm. Did you, before you dropped into that section, I know you're a fan of breath work. Uh, Shout out to Reese and our breath collective. Did you do any specific breath right before that? What are you saying to yourself? What's the internal monologue on that one right before you drop that section? Yeah, for sure. You know, I am a big fan of breath work and Reese and Luke at our breath collective have done a lot teaching me different techniques and where and when to use different things. And when I'm really needing to calm myself down, I do a square breath. If like at the top of Bertha or something like that, when I have a bit more time, I'll do like a a four by four square breath in this moment it's more breath yeah like a box breath got it and in this moment it's more just longer exhale to calm my heart rate down and i really use this rhythm thing where i if i get really nervous i focus on some sort of rhythm so if it's Mm -hmm. a rhythm within my breath or rhythm of counting numbers or rhythm of a beat or something that I can just one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, whatever it is that kind of comes at that time to just keep me on track. Mm -hmm. And 
and it's a crazy just the power of the breath a situation like that to just calm you down if you can just start to forget about the other things and just focus in it really brings you into the other things that are important okay my feet are on the ground <laughs> making a turn <laughs> we're doing this yeah it just narrows it's like a really forces you into the present moment it sounds like helps you yeah, bring, bring you there like a mm -hmm. catalyst for it well, he made it. It was super inspiring and badass from my perspective. And congrats to you on that send. And but before you left to go to Glacier Bay, all of you met with a woman from the local. I don't know if I'll get the the pronunciation right, but Tlingit tribe. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. close. What did you learn from her, and and how did that show up for you on the trip? Yeah, the Tlingit tribe is native to Glacier Bay and uh, we were lucky enough to kind of spend some time with her and pay our respects and just honor their connection with the land and with that specific area and she blessed our trip and which was amazing and gave us some tips on just Glacier Bay is very wild and to just take that energy in and, and know that we're a part of that and I think yeah I, I am so intrigued by I think the native americans just their connection with nature and and how they've held on to those practices and how those practices are being revived and brought into society these days and not that they ever went away but i think they're being very much honored and recognized and i think that we all have a lot to learn from the natives and their way of life and their connection with the earth because it was far more connected in, back mm. in the day than what we have yeah. now. Yeah, they're pretty tapped in. And I love how she talked about, I know in a lot of indigenous culture, they they view nature as their ancestors, right? And I loved how she said something like, and therefore the ancestors are still out there and you may need to call on their strength when you hit a tough spot in the trip. So keep mm -hmm. that in mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So switching gears out of edge of the earth, which was amazing. You've just reflecting back on your career and writing and the amount of time that you've spent in super majestic mountain landscapes, more than most people in the world will do in their lifetimes. What have you learned from nature and being in the presence of mountains so much that you wish you could kind of wave a magic wand and share with everybody or wish everyone knew about that or could take away from it? Or a feeling that you wish you could share with everybody or experience that comes yeah. from that time in the mountains. Yeah. You know, it's hard to describe. It's hard to describe with words the feeling that you get when you're amongst the big mountains, whether you're working really hard to hike to the top of one or you're riding down one or you're just immersed in the trees. I think there's this sense of connection I think that that would be the thing I would love mm. to be able to raise a magic wand and share with every human on this earth is I feel this sense of connection with the earth and also with myself that I tend to lose in everyday life. And I think that that's what like keeps me coming back to nature is just, I feel connected to something bigger than myself. And I also feel this innate connection to that universal energy being within me as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's hard to find that elsewhere, I think. 
Yeah, I find it takes the macrodoses of nature to uh, <laughs> to access that. It's beautiful, yeah. though. So you're also part of the Athlete Alliance for Protect Our Winters, or POW, if I'm getting that right. Yep. Is there anything you want to share about Protect Our Winters? You know, what, what are they doing? What's what's your involvement been? Or any messages you want to share about Protect Our Winters? Yeah, for sure. Protect Our Winters is their mission is to really take help outdoor enthusiasts who are passionate about the places that they play and help them use their voices to protect those places. And there's so many ways to get involved. And I think that they make it really easy to turn your passion for the outdoors into a passion for being an activist. And uh, I never really considered myself an activist or an environmentalist until I realized that just my love for the outdoors can be that. And I think that they provide kind of the tools to help bridge that gap. And as an athlete ambassador, I just really help use my voice to speak for those places that we all love to play. POW's main mission is to turn outdoor passionate people into advocates. So their main work is in government advocacy. And so voting for the outdoors, voting for environmental legislature, voting for environmental candidates, you know, people who really want to work for our earth and not just for the bottom line. I think that that's really where we're at. (laughs) But it's intimidating. I mean, for me, even it's intimidating to be like, I want to get involved in that world. And, And I think that they're doing a really good job of bridging the gap for people to be able to say, I love this place. I don't want to be in politics, but I can, I can be involved in this way or this way. And there's Mm -hmm. so many like levels of that. And I think people really overlook the local level of politics Mm. and how much impact it has. And that's something I've learned from protective winters is just the local level of politics makes such a huge difference, especially environmental causes. So there's a lot of good resources there for anyone who wants to get involved. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thanks for putting the effort in there. And I think Jeremy and the crew do a great job of yeah, providing on-ramps for people to get involved and even in the films, kind of weaving in some of that to the story without being super heavy-handed. And I'm a big fan of anything that's working on, you know, saving the beauty and epicness of nature is awesome. But when around a lot of the storytelling around it is so bummer. And so I love that snowboard film can make you want to go get out in the mountains and ride, but also you learn a few things along the way that might make you think different about something or act different, hopefully. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's so easy to go down doomsday route, but there is so much positive things happening in the world right now. And in regards to environmental conservation and this world moving into a really great place. So I think there's a lot of hope. Yeah. Awesome. I want to try a new question. <laughs> Um, I like it. Which is, it's, it's, I think it'll be easy, but you know, when I observe the ways of nature junkies, pretty much all of them choose professions or go about their professions in a way that helps them prioritize time and nature, if that makes sense. And clearly Mm -hmm. you've chosen to be a pro snowboarder, which 
your whole job is out in nature for the most part. I know you have to do some other promotional things that are not. It's probably difficult, but what do you have to say about the importance of that choice for you and how important that is in your life? Yeah. You know, I feel very grateful to have a career that puts me in the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And I know that not everyone can make that choice. And I know that that's totally a privilege and it's not something I take for granted. I'm grateful for it very much every day. I would say if you have that choice and you're able to surround your life workings around nature, it is absolutely worth any sacrifice that you need to make to do that. And if you can't make that choice for whatever reason that your career can't be surrounded by nature, making the conscious choice to get into nature as much as possible is the next best thing. Yeah. That's another pattern I noticed about nature junkies is that even if their job is not immersed in nature, like yours is, they have a Mm -hmm. very keen sense of when they need to hit the eject button and go tap into (laughs) nature more so than most people, I would say like it's just a trait. It seems, um, last couple that I love to ask everybody is what, what is nature to you? How do you define it? Everyone has a different definition. I would say nature is the feeling of the earth connection, something bigger than yourself. I think that nature can be a bouquet of flowers inside of your house or nature can be a perfectly mowed golf course um, <laughs> or nature can be the farthest out mountains in Alaska. It's just this feeling of connection to, to our world, really. Love it. So you, Elena, are a person that macrodoses nature quite regularly, but mm-hmm. I want to ask you, how do you, how do you microdose nature? regularly what are quick quick easy ways that you tap in more frequently i think just stepping outside and closing my eyes and staring at the sun is my number one way to microdose nature leaning against a tree or smelling the flowers three great ones (laughs) what's next for you film wise i know you have a new part in the the arc movie anything else you want to plug or share, put on our radar that's coming next that we should keep an eye out for? Yeah, for sure. Um, This last season I filmed uh, with a bunch of good friends and we put out a film called Art. I had opening part in that. I'm super proud of it. You can watch it on Outside TV or my part is available on my YouTube. This coming winter or this coming fall, I have everything I worked on last winter. Lots of exciting things coming up. I've got a movie that I worked on with Arc'teryx, my main sponsor. That's going to be amazing. Standard Films is also back with partnering mm. with TGR. I filmed with them. So that should be a really fun film that comes out. And um, have, Are there names of those films yet? Are they kind of in working title? Not mode? yet. Working titles. Okay. Everything comes out in the fall. So September, yep. October, keep an eye out for some fun flicks. That hopefully cool. will get you psyched to get into the mountains. Yeah, <laughs> I know they will. Exciting to hear that Standard Films is back. That's cool. Yeah. Where would you love to point people to connect with you? Instagram, YouTube, all of the above, your website. What, what do you, where do you want to send people? Yeah, I would say I'm most active on Instagram. Um, hit me up. Shoot me a DM. Um, I'll try to get back to you. Facebook, 
and yeah, those are my most, most active. I am as available as I can be. And I love to interact with people. So shoot me a message and let's connect. Awesome. Well, Elena, thank you so much for your time and energy and vividly taking us to those places that you've been, even though a lot of us will never stand in them or ride in them, but I hope it'll inspire some people to go do it. I'll I hope so too. Some, yeah. I'll get some winter camping at some point. And also I'm going to plug your arc part and say, not only are you charging down super steep mountains, but I saw that styly method off one of those spines. That was really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being bold and stylish. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that. Love it. And, um, yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed our conversation and I love being a nature junkie. <laughs> I don't know about you, but after chatting with Elena, I am jonesing to get out into the mountains this winter. It also really rekindled my stoke for backcountry riding, which I used to do quite a bit. Before we go, I wanna share four key pieces of nature junkie wisdom I distilled from this conversation with Elena. One is to remember to turn to nature as a refuge when we're going through big changes in life. For Elena, her splitboarding trip to the Sierras afforded her the space to contemplate and reflect on how she was going to approach the next chapter of her snowboarding career. Two is that nature can stretch us outside our comfort zone. If we give it the chance, it can help us understand how much more we're capable of in life than we might think. In Elena's case, it was summiting and riding Mount Bertha in Alaska. Three is that we can use the majestic power of nature to fully enter the present moment and often prime ourselves to enter a flow state. For Elena, it's those critical moments when her experience, her breath work, and her mindset all come together. Four is that being in awe-inspiring natural landscapes helps us feel a stronger sense of connection to ourselves, everyone, and everything in the universe. This, by the way, is also the cornerstone of mystical experiences, which very clearly can happen in nature, and I hope it happens for you. Lastly, be sure to watch Elena's most recent part in the snowboard film, Flying High Again, as well as many of the other features and films that we talked about during the conversation. You will not be disappointed. She's a badass, she rips, she has style. Elena, thank you again for being on the show and to everyone else, as always, enjoy the ride. As always, thanks for tuning in to Nature Junkie Radio. I invite you to head over to our website at naturejunkielife.com for show notes, to learn more about Nature Connection, and to sign up for our newsletter. And one last thing, please share how you microdose nature so I can share it with everyone in a future episode of the podcast. It's simple. Just get out your phone, record a voice memo for about 30 seconds to a minute, tell me your first name, where you're from, Describe how you microdose nature and importantly, how does it make you feel? Just email that voice memo to hello at naturejunkielife.com. That's hello at naturejunkielife.com. And that's all it takes. Thanks so much in advance. And as always, thanks for listening to Nature Junkie Radio.
Microdose Nature and Replenish Your Stoke.